Uh, the reading today is from Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31, and can be paid on page 4 in the Bibles. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, Everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. I'll lead us in prayer. We just prayed, our Father, in this song that you would be our delight. We know, Father, how often that is so difficult to do, how often, Father, our desires stray onto other things. But, Father, we pray that by your Spirit's work, you would help us and cause us to delight in you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, fastest growing industries in recent years is do-it-yourself genetic testing. Uh, for about £100, you can have the privilege of extracting your own blood or saliva, handing it to some poor courier, and then in a few days later, you'll receive your own dedicated webpage uh, displaying your genetic makeup. So many people are using this service. Uh, some of you may have here. Come and speak to me afterwards. Uh, I'll be interested to see how you got on. Uh, that the industry, along with ancestry uh, research, is set to reach $45 billion by 2024. Now, to put that in perspective, that is the size of the complete global art trade. It's huge. Uh, one researcher on the industry comments, most people take these tests because it's a Christmas present and they're desperate to find out whether they have Viking ancestry. Now, if you're looking for Christmas present ideas for me, let me just say I'm happy with the, the, the bog-standard socks or jumper, not one of these. It's interesting, though, isn't it? The rise in genetic testing. It shows that all of us still have that innate desire to find out who we are, where we come from, what goes into making me See, despite what our culture says about our ability to self-define, actually we still have that need to find meaning 
from outside of ourselves. And that's what the passage in front of you this morning does uh, this morning. It doesn't, it's not a genetic test, although feel free to extract your own blood and pay £100, because here we have the maker's description. See, we're in a series on Genesis, and as the title suggests, it begins, uh, it deals with the beginnings of our world and of us. And for the last few weeks, we've looked at the creation of the world. Um, We've looked at what it was like in the beginning and uh, what God did to make it the way it is now. But now we get to the climax, because now we get to the creation of human beings. Now, I'm sure there are all sorts of questions this morning about how that happens, uh, questions about evolution, and um, I'm afraid you're going to be very disappointed because I'm going to duck them all, um, not because I don't think we could say anything about them, but because Clive did a lot on that last week, so um, go and ask him, or go and download the talk last week. Because here, I think the issue in these verses is not the how, but the why. Why are we here? Why are human beings at all? And I want us to see three things this morning. First of all, I want us to see that we've got a role status. And then secondly, that we've got a royal role. And then thirdly, we need a royal renewal. Now, I've used that word royal several times. And uh, you might be asking why, because it's not mentioned in the passage. Well, it all comes from this idea of image and likeness. Um, If you close the Bibles, please reopen them on page four. Just notice how this word gets used. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male or female, he created him. Now, immediately, that raises the question, doesn't it? What does image mean? What does likeness mean? And um, lots of clever people, a lot cleverer than I am, have dived in on this point and given their two pennies worth about what they think an image is. Uh, they say it could be our spiritual capacity, it could be our ability for relationships, it could be our moral reasoning, it could be our ability to rationalize, it could be our ability to relate to God. And let me just say, all of those things are absolutely true in the Bible. They're all things I think we can say about human beings but I don't think we can tell that yet from this passage. And the thing is, there is a danger that we read in all the kind of concepts of what we think a human is, and we miss the gravity of what is being said here in Genesis. See, in the context, if you had nothing else, to be an image is to reflect something or someone. In fact, uh, the closest context comes in chapter 5. Just turn over the page, it's worth a look. Chapter 5, verse 3. Adam has a son, Seth, but look at how he's described, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Now, unfortunately for my son, Samuel, uh, he is going to grow up and look like me, and... um, Yes, appreciate the notes of sympathy for him. I don't know what to make of that, to be honest, but there we go. Uh, uh, In fact, you can already see it, he's three and a half, you can see that he reflects me, not just in his looks, uh, but in the way he is, and it's quite creepy. Now, he doesn't reflect me perfectly, of course, he's not a clone, Uh, that would be weird. Uh, he's, He's like me, he's in my image. And that's the natural way to understand these words here. 
In fact, it fits elsewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, Words like image and likeness are used of kings. Uh, A king would make a statue of themselves. Um, One such example is Daniel 3, where Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue. But what's interesting is the word used. We're told it is an image. Do you see the point? See, human beings, being in God's image, means they're like God. They reflect God. Uh, Alec uh, Matia, who's an excellent Bible scholar, he says this, we can feel the scandal, as he puts it, of the idea these words convey. By translating them, let us make man in our form and shape. Let us make a lookalike. Now, of course, that immediately raises the question, how? I mean, God's very different to us, isn't he? He's all-powerful, we're not. God's invisible, we're physical. But the author doesn't get there. And I know that's very frustrating, but it is because the author wants us to see something else, and that is our status. Just so you know, I'm not going completely off on a a crazy direction. John Piper uh, says similar. Uh, He's a minister over in the States. He says this, the image and likeness means a whole person, both physically and spiritually, is in some sense like his maker. Just what the nature of this likeness is, we're not told. But we are told what really matters. Even as sinners, we bear God's image. See, the point is, no other part of creation is made in God's image. God creates salmon, swallows, and sheep. Only human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And You see that, don't you, in the special status. I love the way Ted read it and put the emphasis on verse 31 because um, you really see it, don't you? All through this chapter, chapter 1, back on page 4, you see this repeat. God saw it and it was good. uh, God saw it and it was good. God saw it and it was good. And then verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. See, human beings are the climax of creation. Okay, you say, so we're in the image of God, but what's the significance of that? Well, the remarkable idea is that every single person is in the image of God. It's worth just saying that um, Genesis isn't the only bit of literature to talk about our beginnings and creation. In fact, um, in the last couple of hundred years, we've dug up all sorts of creation stories, creation narratives. Uh, just like today, we have stories about how we began. People say it's just luck or it's a lucky throw of the cosmic dice. And back in the ancient world, people had all sorts of alternative stories. And a lot of people have a problem with that because they say, well, it seems that Genesis has kind of copied them. But that is the complete opposite, in fact. See, Genesis is reacting against them. It's a polemic, if you like, against some of these ancient stories. Now, let me give you an example of this. This is uh, about the god Baal. Um, don't hear much about uh, him much nowadays, but uh, here's what is said. Um, the father of the king, my lord, was the image of Baal. Notice the language. And the king, my lord, is the image of Baal. Now notice who this is about. It's about the king. See, there were such things as people being in the image of God, but they sat on a throne and they wore a crown. But do you see what Genesis is doing? It democratizes the image Everyone has God's likeness. Whether you're a slave or a king, you have a royal status. That everyone includes both sexes. Notice in verse 27, 
in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now, it's worth saying this in passing, um, because where our culture is today, that as originally given, male and female are good things. See, I think we're in a time in our culture where that is brought into question. People argue that um, male and female are really essentially human constructions. They're kind of arbitrary ideas that are imposed uh, on men and women. And because of that, people feel very constrained and uh, feel very um, prejudiced. Uh, People use it as an excuse for prejudice. But the culture's answer to that, I think, is hugely mistaken. See, I think our answer is to say that there's no real difference between male and female. People have noticed that one sex has not been treated equally, and so the way they bring them together is to say, essentially, there's nothing different about a woman or a man. Now, at their best, I think people are trying to secure equality. They're trying to make sure that one of the sexes isn't treated differently, but the trouble is, in doing so, we lose something of our humanness. There's a great irony there, isn't it, that in a quest for diversity, we end up denying it. Do you see why Genesis 1 is so different? It's beautifully diverse, isn't it? Male and female. It says they're different, but it manages to hold together that equality, that they're both in the image of God. Come and ask me more about that afterwards. But back to this point about status. Why does this matter? Why do we need to know that we're in the image of God? Well, we live in a time where I think that is no longer assumed. See, for centuries, in the Western world at least, um, people have had this text as their foundation story. Now, not everyone's followed it, admittedly, but it has been a standard to, to call people back to. Everyone, we say, is in the image of God. Everyone has dignity, male or female, different races, different classes, whether people are unborn or born, disabled, or even our enemy, they are in the image of God. But now, that foundation is being challenged. There's a guy called uh, Peter Singer. Uh, You may have heard of him. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University, and uh, often we talk about him at college because he had some very out there ideas, which perhaps shows where our culture might end up. He um, attacks this idea of us being special, being special in the image of God. He calls it speciesism, saying that essentially we're being like racists in discriminating against animals over uh, in prejudicing humans. And to be, give Peter Singer his credit, he is consistent because he follows that argument to where it's logical conclusion, and he argues even for infanticide in certain cases. Now, most people don't go as far as Peter Singer. He is an extreme case, and people on both sides of the political spectrum uh, attack him. But the question is why? On what basis? If we cannot say that everyone's in the image of God, why do we have a special care for the vulnerable? Why not just trample the poor? Why listen to the voices of the weak or the voiceless? I don't think our society can come up with an answer. But here in Genesis, we have a different story. See, all of us are in God's image. All of us have a special status. Whatever you feel like this morning, whatever your background, 
whatever you've done, whatever people have said about you, whether you're a Christian or you're not, you matter because you're in God's image. Whatever you feel about the people around you, whatever their background, whatever they've done, whatever people have said to them, whether they're Christian or not, they matter because they're in God's image. But moving on to our second point, and these next two points are a bit shorter, so you can breathe a sigh of relief. Um, This is not just about a royal status. We are also given a royal role. See, there's another distinction here uh, between us and the animals. Only human beings are given a job description. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Do you see the job description? We're to fill the earth and to subdue it. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, last week, uh, Clive took us through uh, the days of creation. And um, you probably saw, uh, I think Clive explained this, that there's a real pattern to the days of creation. Um, Right at the beginning, the earth, uh, we're told, and the heavens are without form, and they're empty. And in days one to three, God gives the universe form. He makes separations, uh, explained by that graphic that you cannot read up there. And, um, sorry about that. Uh, And then in days four to six, he then fills that creation. So days one to four, it's like he gets the canvas ready, sketches the outline, and in days four to six, he paints the picture. Now look again at our job description in verse 28. Be fruitful and increase the number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over over every other living creature that moves on the ground. Do you see the point? It reflects God's creation. Just as he forms and fills, we too fill and rule over what he's made. See, God has made all of us into his vice-regents, or if you like, we're all CEOs of his world. Now, that word subdue and rule doesn't mean exploit. Some people have taken this text and used it as a license to use all the world's resources and stuff the consequences, but that is to forget that we rule under God. We rule, we're meant to rule in a way that honors him and is right for his creation. See, we are kings, but we're kings under him. Now, Tim Keller, the uh, American uh, minister, he uh, has got a great illustration for this, and I, as soon as I heard it, I thought, oh, I need to think of another one, but I couldn't do any better, so I'm just going to nick it. Uh, he says, um, this idea of image, you could compare to a painting or a picture, but actually, he says, it's more helpful if you think of it as a mirror. See, a mirror isn't the same as the person. It reflects the person. But more than that, he talks about a story where he goes off to the middle of the woods with some other people, goes camping, and someone uses a mirror to light a fire. They get the mirror, point all the sun's rays on some dry wood and kindling, and then suddenly it erupts into flames. And that is the picture given here, isn't it? We're meant to reflect God. We're in His image, but we're meant to reflect His rule and his creativity in the world around us. See, God, if you think about it, he could have run the world himself. He's perfectly capable. He could have filled the world with billions of people in an instant, 
He could have produced a ready package weld, ready to go. He didn't need to wait till the 1960s to make Basingstoke. He could have done it right at the beginning. But he doesn't. He makes a world of potential. And he makes human beings, you and me, in his image, to bring that potential out of the world, to make a world of rich variety. Now, again, this is absolutely fascinating. When you start comparing Genesis to the other ancient accounts. Um, there's one example from Mesopotamia. Uh, anyone been on holiday there? Uh, a few of us may have. It's been renamed a couple of times. Mesopotamia. Uh, they've got a story about how the world began. And um, it's, uh, it starts off between a war between two gods, Tiamat and Marduk. And basically, lots of gods side with each of these uh, uh, individual gods, and Marduk's forces defeat Tiamat's forces. And uh, Tiamat's killed, and his body, half of it, is used to create the world. And basically, Marduk makes all the gods that he defeated his slaves. They're to do work on the earth. But the gods aren't very happy with that, so they go back to Marduk and say, excuse me, um, we're not very happy with this, probably the first trade union we can think of. They say, we're not very happy about these uh, working conditions. Could you make us some slaves? And Marduk kind of gives in, And uh, he decides, out of the blood of Tiamat, to make human beings. Uh, Here's what's said. I will form man, let him be burdened with the toil of the gods, that they may be free to breathe. And from his blood he formed mankind, imposed toil on man, set the gods free. Do Do you see the difference between this and Genesis? See, that account, humans are an afterthought. It wasn't God's intention. And they're made to serve the gods with hard labor. But the Bible is completely different, isn't it? It's wonderful. We've been given dignity. We've been given a royal status. And we serve, but not to kind of feed the gods, but as an expression of God's creativity. See, you can see, can't you, how this gives dignity to our work. We've been designed as mirrors. I know it feels like this sometimes, but work is not a curse. It was in the beginning. And work isn't something we just do to make money. Work is how we've been put together. Uh, The author, Dorothy Sayers, uh, she says this, um, what is a Christian understanding of work? It's not that work primarily is a thing that one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. There's something deeply humanizing about our work. It's difficult when we cannot do it. And in our best moments, work is hugely satisfying. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had to rearrange the top half of our house at home. We've got a new baby on its way. Um, we've got the phone there ready, uh, just in case. And uh, we've had to kind of rearrange all the, um, the rooms upstairs. But the thing is, um, it wasn't as just simple of moving stuff around. We had to uh, disassemble uh, some of the beds, uh, take down the wardrobes, fill up the holes I've drilled, and then go to the next room and then put them all back up again, drill new holes, and uh, put up new mirrors, curtains, and that sort of thing. It was a very hard day. I made the kids uh, work hard. They were complaining about their backs aching or something like that. Uh, and uh, they shouldn't be carrying a wardrobe, I know. But uh, <laughs> we were all very exhausted. But do you know what? It's great satisfaction afterwards. So much so, it's a bit embarrassing to tell you this, but I walked upstairs for a week afterwards and just looked at the rooms, and I thought, that mirror, so straight. (laughs) The bed I reassembled, so firm. 
the wardrobe hasn't collapsed yet. And you know that feeling, don't you? At your best moments in your work, when the wood's sanded perfectly so you can just run your fingers along it, when you serve that customer so they are delighted, when you submit the spreadsheet, when you send the final email, there's great satisfaction in God's work, a forming, reordering, filling creation. Now, there's lots I could say on this, and I, I do think probably we've got to have a whole series on this topic, but one of the things to take away here is how this gives us dignity to our work. And how much do we need to hear this at the moment? Because we live in a society, don't we, where we judge people according to their work. It doesn't start God's image and God's work. It starts uh, our work, and then we give dignity to people. Uh, To give you an example, if you go to a party, you know when you meet someone, you say to them, hi, my name's Rob, or whatever your name is, and then the first question to come back is, so what do you do? Normally when I say I'm a vicar, the conversation ends pretty quickly. But um, you get the point, don't you? And, and, and when we do that, people make all sorts of assessments of our value, who we are, where we fit in the pecking order. But God has given work, any work, aside from being sinful, he's given it dignity. Whether we're a postman or a prime minister, a laborer or a lawyer, a baker or a banker, we reflect God's royal role. Thirdly, a royal renewal. Because at this point, I want to finish on this point, because you may be thinking, yes, this seems great, but it's not my experience. I mean, we don't see human beings live in this way. We don't treat everyone like they're in God's image. We shout at them. We question them on Twitter. We don't treat the world like we're meant to be looking after it. And you cannot help read this passage without asking that question, what has gone wrong? Now, I think these verses in the whole Bible are meant to do that to us. So I think they've got a double effect. Um, the way to think about this is it's a bit like when you look at a picture of yourself when you're younger. Have you done this? Um, I've got a picture at home uh, of me in my early 20s. And the, the older I get, uh, the more I look at it and think, wow, you were thin there. Uh, wow, you had great hair there. Uh, wow, you had less wrinkles. You see, don't you? It's still you but actually you've seen how far you've fallen, and in my case, quite far. And Genesis is like that. It shows us the perfect image, but it also shows up how different we are. And in two chapters' time, in chapter 3, we're going to see this perfect image unravel. Adam and Eve were meant to subdue the world and rule over it, but when the serpent comes and evil enters the world, they serve him. Adam and Eve were meant to fill the earth with people, beauty, and culture, but instead they fill it with the ugliness of sin. And every generation like them fails to live up to God's image. We may be still the image of God, we may still have dignity, but it is very marred, like an old mirror with a thick layer of dust, so that it only faintly reflects what it's meant to. But God has not stopped there. Because he sends another one into our world who truly reflects this image. Have a look on your handouts at Colossians chapter 1. You don't need to turn there, it's uh, just uh, the verses there. Um, As I read this, just think, who's this describing? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
Now, because we've got Genesis 1 in our minds, you might think, this is Adam. This is what Adam should have been. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. But this is talking about Jesus. See, Jesus, we're taught, is the only one who truly reflected that image, like a brand new mirror that perfectly reflects every beautiful detail. See, if we want to see true humans, we sadly cannot look to ourselves, but we need to look to him. He was the only one to rule in the way he was meant to. He subdued evil when he saw it. He treated everyone with dignity. He reflected God's care for his creation. See, Jesus is the true image of God. But incredibly, it doesn't stop there. Look at Colossians chapter 3. You've put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Now, look at who he's speaking about there. He's speaking about Christians. And and notice his description of the Christian life. It's not we become Christians and then kind of try and do the right thing. It's not we become Christians and we sit around waiting for heaven. It's saying God is working in you now, renewing you in the knowledge of the image of its creator. See, through Jesus, through the only true human, through his death and resurrection, we are made into a new humanity to reflect our creator in the way we were designed. See, a lot of us, I think, can think about the Christian life as a kind of losing something. We kind of think we've got to give up our habits, we've got to give up our personality, and we can describe the Christian life in a very dehumanizing way that we all become monks and sit around not really being who we are. But do you see, this is the opposite. See, to become a Christian is to become truly human. I was in a conversation with someone a while ago, and they were speaking about another Christian they knew who suffers terribly from ill health, and physically, they're getting more and more frail. But this person said to me, do you know what they said? They said, it is wonderful to see them becoming more alive. See, we may waste away externally, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day, and this is what Jesus is doing with you and me. See, despite the stories of our culture, we're not an accident. We're not just the lucky throw of the cosmic dice. We have a maker. We have been made to reflect his image. And now he is renewing us into the image we were meant to be. Just want to put three things out there to discuss in tea and coffee afterwards and to reflect on in the week ahead. Remember, everyone is in God's image. It may be a marred image, but everyone has this dignity. I wonder what it would look like as a church at St. Mary's to treat everyone in that way, and everyone outside St. Mary's, in our town, in our nation. What would this look like? Secondly, we're designed to reflect God. I wonder if you've thought about your work that way. Perhaps when you go tomorrow, pray, God, please help me to work in a way that reflects you. Be a good thing to do. Thirdly, remember we're in the business of growing human beings beings. Um, There can be lots of motives to share the gospel, lots of different ones we're given in Scripture, but primarily we're not about getting people in church, and primarily we're not about just getting people to escape judgment. We are in the business of directing people to the one who can make true human beings. Let's pray. You have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. We thank you, our gracious God, that you have made us with special dignity and the honor of working for you. And we praise you, Father, that when we've strayed from this, you've not left us, but you have come in your Son, and that you continue to renew us by your Spirit. Oh, Father, help us to see the world as you have put it here, and help us to delight in your work. And we pray, Father, that we would continue by your enabling to reflect your image. In Jesus' name, amen.